really believe that today's message has the ability to deeply impact each of our lives and that it's a timely conversation to be had for each of us because let's be real. For the last few months, we have been inundated with news about political divide and racial tensions and injustice and corruption and prejudice and all of the above. And that's just in the news. Add to it our, our social media feed, as well as conversations we're having with coworkers and even debates we might be having within our own families and within our own homes. And, and, and these kind of things leave even the most confident person wondering what to do, right? Like, how do we follow Jesus in the midst of these current events, let alone the everyday challenges in our lives, right? And, and how do we love people? How do we showcase the love of Jesus in response to perhaps what might be at different times unlovable behavior? And how do we bring out the best in one another when we're reminded all too easily of how we can bring out the worst in one another? If you've been having these kind of questions, then today is a good day to be in church because I have really good news for us. God is not thrown by the current events. He's not thrown by our personal perplexities. And he doesn't leave us in the dark on how to respond. And I believe that today we can leave here not just with answers from God's word, but with a heavenly hope that transfers into a new ability to love and care and connect for one another and be united as the family of God. And so... With that in mind, why don't you turn your Bibles, if you have your Bibles or a Bible app that you can access right now, turn it to the New Testament book of the Bible, Ephesians, and park at chapter 2. If you don't have that available to you, that's okay. We're going to have the scripture on the screen in just a moment. But Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're locating Ephesians chapter 2, I'll, I'll fill you in on some context and what's been happening at this point of God's redemption story for humanity. Jesus has died he sacrificed his life on a criminal's cross. Even though he didn't deserve it, he paid the ultimate debt for our personal sins and the sin of all humanity. And in giving his perfect life, he made possible for us a life we could never attain on our own, a life free from shame and sin and guilt and fear. He offered us a new beginning, one marked by mercy and grace and hope and the assurance of eternal life. And to top it all off, if that wasn't enough, he showed the full extent of his power as the Son of God when he rose from the dead. He defeated the grave, and when he left the earth, he gave us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower and guide those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in response to these wild events that have taken place, their, their world-altering events, the name of Jesus and the message of Jesus has been spreading at this point in history like wildfire. People are hearing the good news of Jesus and they're becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Thus, the church in its infancy has begun. And we see church communities popping out in major cities throughout the Roman Empire. One of these cities was the city of Ephesus. It was this major booming city and tourist attraction. And it was also deeply religiously and racially diverse. It was a cultural melting pot. And this was the kind of place that you were only as successful as your connections or your ability to hustle. Sound familiar, right? <laughs> and to top it all off, there was this magnificent temple for the goddess Artemis, but this was not the only god that was being worshipped in the city. Money, power, fame, politics, corruption were also high on the list. And it's in the midst of these events that people of all different backgrounds and experiences of personal preferences, ethnic and cultural upbringings, economic classes, are being radically transformed by the love of God found in Jesus Christ. There was a, a movement of miracles that was happening, but it didn't come without a its problems and its challenges. Movements get messy, and this was no exception. 
We think cultures colliding in the name of Christ sounds exciting and progressive and huge leaps forward in equality and justice. And yes, that's true. But it was also conflict provoking and chaos inducing and character developing. And the church found themselves at a crossroads. They found themselves asking questions like, what place does diversity play in the church? Are our differences stacked too high up against us, forcing us to settle into Christian acquaintances and fellow attendees of church and nothing more? Like, are, are, are we to just kind of act pleasant enough towards one another in corporate settings and then remain distant and divided outside of our church services? Or should we just avoid the conversation of our differences altogether, you know, just kind of like ignore the elephant in the room? And with heightened tensions between those of a Jewish background who were now at church and those of a non-Jewish background referred to as Gentiles in the scripture, this actually seemed like a decent option for maintaining the peace. And it's in the midst of all of this happening that Paul pens the passage that we're about to read in Ephesians chapter 2. And not only does he bring clarity to the church 2,000 years ago, but it is a fresh and relevant revelation for us here this morning as well. So let's begin reading Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. It says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Verse 16 says this, together, why don't we go ahead and look at this. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling place where God lives by his spirit. Let's pray this morning before we begin to examine this a bit more closely. Jesus, we thank you that you're here, that your presence is here, that your spirit is here, that you give us ears to really hear what you want to say to us and eyes to really see what you want us to know. And we pray, oh God, that even though perhaps the, the same tensions don't exist with the same specifics 2,000 years ago, we do recognize that there are tensions that exist today. And I pray, oh God, that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we could know how to eliminate those tensions and those divides 
that we could truly be the family of God to one another, that we could be united by your blood, Jesus, that we could leave here, not just with information, but we could leave here led by your spirit, knowing how to interact with one another in a way that brings healing, hope, strength, and love to every person in this room and to those who are not yet in this room. We pray that you have your way, Jesus, in our hearts and our lives this morning, and that we leave here because of the power of your word and the power of your spirit different than when we came in here this morning. Have your way, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So there's a lot of bold statements that Paul is making here to the church, but the boldest by far is this. He says to the church, you're not just acquaintances. You're not just fellow attendees in a church service. You're not just members of the same group. You're not even just friends who casually hang out together. You're something far greater. You are family. And that message actually applies to us as well. We family. Why don't you turn to the right and say to somebody, we family. Come on, turn to the left and say to that other person, we family. If you were one of those people who had nobody sitting next to you and it was awkward, we're so sorry. Go ahead and just mouth it. We family. Act like somebody was there to say this back to you, right? We family. We family. Think about that for a second. We family. Now, regardless of what our own understanding of family is, because when we say family, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. There is something that we all understand about family. Family is not something you choose. It's something you're born into, right? We understand that the most common denominator of family is simply we're related by blood. And the same is actually true for us. We no longer get to pick and choose who we see family, right? We're just born into the same family. And we too are bound by blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're no longer bound by our experiences or our preferences or who looks like us or who thinks like us or who has similar views to us or who has the same background or cultural upbringing or economic status as us. No, we are bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And just like in natural families, that lowest common denominator of a bloodline can never be broken, friends. The bond that we have in Jesus for each of us can never be broken as well. We family. We just are and we for, will forever be. That's how it is. But this is not a reality that we need to just tolerate in our lives. It's actually something we can celebrate. We don't have to just put up with one another and succumb to the same dysfunctions that are all too common in physical families today. But we have an opportunity to be the family of God to one another in a way in which we're thriving and growing together. We're maturing together in our faith. We family. And we have the opportunity to be the kind of family that brings out the best in each other. Because we family. I was hanging out with my family this past Thursday. I went over to Kristen and Justin's, Kristen, my sister, Justin, my brother-in-law, and, and nephew, my, uh, Rocco, my four-year-old nephew. And we were hanging out. I was building jet planes and skyscrapers made of Legos with Rocco. And then we had dinner together, all of us. And then Rocco got ready for bed. And then he kissed my sister. He kissed me goodnight. Actually, it was more like he gave me a raspberry on my face and then giggled about it like a four-year-old boy would. I was like, oh, thanks, Rocco. Really great, you know? And, and then after they, he went to bed, we all kind of got some popcorn. We had our bowls of popcorn because we were a family who loves popcorn. And for the next hour and a half, we just sat and we talked. We talked everything from shop to ethics to family to future to theology. We laughed together. We teased each other. We confided in each other. We encouraged each other. You know, we dreamed together. We agreed to pray for one another. And as I was walking home that night from their house and reflecting on the last few hours I'd spent with my family on Court Street with tears in my eyes, I became incredibly thankful for my family. 
See, the last couple of years of my life have been some of the greatest years of my life. They've been a true treasure, a gift that I will always hold dear. But that gift hasn't been without a cost. It's been some of the greatest years of my life, but it's also been some of the hardest. And you know, when things get difficult, you don't necessarily need another lecture. You don't necessarily need somebody to analyze your problem. You don't necessarily need another sermon to listen to or a book to read. You don't necessarily need another seminar to attend or fill up your schedule more or to work harder or to have a better attitude. Maybe you need some of those things and maybe you don't. But I guarantee what you always do need. You need family to lean on. And for some of us, this is a statement that's kind of hard here. Because based on our own personal history, family has done more wounding than it has healing. Chances are some of the greatest struggles and pains that we're dealing with today originated within dynamics in our own families. I understand. I grew up in a home with love, yes, but also dysfunction and addiction and abuse and rejection. And God has done an incredible, amazing healing work within my family, and that's an amazing story for another day, but the point is I understand. Regardless of our own personal history with family, I think we all recognize in this room that human beings do best when a part of a healthy family. Satan, who is real, the enemy of our souls, he knows this. And he too has been waging wars against family. If you look at what's happened in our world, you can see that darkness understands that family is a far more powerful institution than anything man could make and has waged its greatest attacks on family. Look at stats, anything from education to violence to depression to disease to addiction to sexuality and you begin to see that trends and issues formed first not in Hollywood or on Wall Street or in the White House but within families. But God knows how powerful families are as well. He made family and he, divide, he designed each of us to thrive relationally within family uniquely connected one to another. Which is why God calls his church the family of God, in which we can embrace each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls us the family of God. He calls the church the family of God, and not a corporation, not a dynasty, not a monarchy, not an empire, not a brand. Why? Because these things convey ideas of power, but nothing of love. They talk of products and agendas, but nothing of people and honor and respect. They speak of progress, perhaps, but nothing of personal connection. And our God is a personal God. He's all about connection. It matters to him how we treat each other. And when we commit to be the family of God to each other, not only does it model Christ's love to a world that is searching for answers, but for each of us, it becomes a vehicle of personal healing and hope. We were made to be family. We family. And so if we've been thrown into, divinely, this new thing called family, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, what is the family dynamics in which we operate? For starters, family is a place to belong and to be known. You know, growing up as a kid, it wasn't like if I didn't show up to the family dinner, my mom would be like, oh, I guess she couldn't make it today. I hope she shows up tomorrow. It'd be a shame if she stopped coming altogether. No, my dad would be yelling from across the house, Nicole Marie Guadalupe Reyes, get your butt over here for dinner, right? Because my absence was noticed and my presence was required. Family, you're more than just a face in the crowd. 
And I'm sorry if anything or anyone ever made you feel that way. Brothers, sisters, your absence is noticed and your presence is always desired. There is always a seat at the table for you because we're family. And family are people who know you better than anybody else, right? Like they just do. My sister, she knows me. She's known me my entire life. She can just look at my face and know what's going on, right? You know, and if she says, what's up, and I say nothing, she's like, liar, try again. Because she's not content with my shallow answers and cookie-cutter responses. Because she knows me. Because we're family. Family, may I suggest that we have more to offer each other than merely shallow answers and cookie-cutter responses. We don't have to say everything's fine when it isn't. We don't have to act like we have it all together because really, who does? We can be honest with one another. We can engage in conversations that matter. We can seek to earn each other's trust through intentional openness and trustworthy compassion towards each other because we family. And family, family is there for each other, aren't they? I can think about my own family. And we've weathered a few storms together. We've been through a lot together, the highs and the lows. You know, when close to two decades ago, my sister said I do to Justin, I was the maid of honor. I was standing right there cheering her on. And in my mid-20s, when I was ordained as a minister, my family was there in the front row cheering me on. And a few years ago, when Rocco's adoption was finalized in the family courtroom, my family and I were there cheering Kristen and Justin and Rocco on. But you know, I was also there a few years prior when Kristen and Justin had to say goodbye to the foster child that they had loved and known since birth and that were hoping to adopt. I was there with them, grieving and crying with them. And a few years ago when I experienced true heartbreak in my life, my sister was there crying and grieving with me. And last year when my dad was saying goodbye to and tending to his dying mother at the hospital, I was there crying and grieving with him. Because that's what you do in your family. You're there for each other. So family, let's be the kind of family that's there for each other. Let's celebrate the weddings and the birthdays and the engagements and the job promotions. And let's also show up to the hospital to pay each other a visit when we're battling sickness. And let's show up to the apartment when we receive the phone call from a friend that says, I just lost my job or the relationship just ended. Let's shed tears over coffee and let's challenge each other in conversation at the gym. Let's be there for each other. Let's pray for one another for the healing, for the deliverance, for the freedom, for the provision, for the direction, for the miracle. Let's be the kind of family that grows up together and weathers a few storms together because we're family. You know, this idea of family, it's not a pipe dream. It's not a romanticized ideal that it's easy to preach about but hard to obtain. It's actually closer than we think. You know, ironically, we are about to start our new community group season. Signups are happening right now. Community groups, are, they happen in homes and coffee shops and in restaurants. And in them, we discuss books and Bible studies and common interests. Sometimes them, they're around food. Sometimes they're around, you know, special activities. They always provide an opportunity for us to know each other and to pray for each other. I hope we understand that these are more than just groups meeting for a little bit. 
I hope we understand that these are family gatherings. They're a practical opportunity for us to embrace each other as brother and sister in Christ, knowing each other, belonging to each other, and remaining committed to each other because we family. It's worth asking the tough question, though. If the opportunity for us to be family exists within our church, and let's be real, within a lot of churches today in the world, then why don't more believers actually feel like family? Like, what's getting in the way? And Paul makes a revealing statement that we just read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He said this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. This was a significant statement for the church at the time. Because at this time, within the Jewish temple and the Jewish enclosure area, Gentiles were actually allowed into the enclosure, but only to a certain point. There was a four and a half foot barrier that acted as a dividing wall between the outer courts and the inner courts in the temple itself. And along this wall was written inscriptions to Gentiles, basically saying, if you want to proceed beyond this point, it will be upon the pain of death. Literally saying, you can kind of get a glimpse of what we have, but you'll never have equal status with us. And if you try, we might harm you, we might even kill you. And here Paul is saying, this wall of hostility has now been torn down. The days of preference and special treatment are over. The days of segregation and prejudice are over. The days of some people feeling included and others left out are over. The same of seeing each other on opposing sides is over. The same as viewing each other merely as victims and oppressors, as the mistreated and the privileged are over. The wall of hostility must be torn down amongst us. And perhaps the tension that exists today within the church is not Jew and Gentile, but it doesn't mean that there aren't still walls of hostility among us that must be actively torn down. We live in a world with inequality and injustice and prejudice and racism and corruption and greed and it just is how it is. And it would be ignorant of us to pretend that just by stepping foot in these doors, we leave it behind for a church service. It's a sobering truth, but it is a truth nonetheless. We can call ourselves Christians while still maintaining our walls. Walls within each of our hearts, walls that divide, walls that protect, walls that keep us comfortable and keep others at a distance. We all have walls. But if we're gonna become truly the family of God, then we need to begin to recognize these walls and actively tear them down in the name of Jesus Christ. We all have walls. They reveal themselves in subtle ways, like in one gender's distrust of another gender after a few heartbreaks, or when examining a certain tight-knit friendship circle, we discover that everybody looks the same, and everybody thinks the same, and everybody dresses the same, and everybody's of the same background, or a liberal's offense towards a conservative, or a conservative's offense towards a liberal, or an older person feeling like, man, all these young people today, they don't know how to treat and respect the older. And a young person today feeling like, I feel abandoned by all the older. They don't even care about my life. Or a certain couple feeling uncomfortable venturing into another zip code where somebody else in the church exists. Or certain people feeling uncomfortable hanging out with somebody of a different wealth or economic status. We all have our walls. 
It's uncomfortable to talk about them. I can feel the discomfort in the room. But if we don't acknowledge them, then we'll never have any hope of tearing them down. Recently, I began reading a book called Just Mercy that Ashley gave to me, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which is a true account of a modern-day civil rights hero who founded the Equal Justice Initiative. And it's both heartbreaking and captivating because you keep hearing these stories of brutal mistreatment just because of the color of somebody's skin that didn't happen decades ago but is happening currently within our nation and really within the world, right? And, and as I'm reading these things, there'd be different times within the subway experience of reading a book that I begin tearing up, I begin shaking. And not just because I was saddened by what I was reading but because I'm infuriated by it. But you see, my first responsibility in reading this and becoming aware of perhaps some new injustices that I kind of knew existed but now I'm getting to see up close and personal is not to get angry at all the racists in the world. Now my first responsibility is to search and probe for the racist within me. To examine the subtle ways in which perhaps I've mistreated or dismissed a certain group of people or over-stereotyped certain situations or ignored all the warning signs of injustice that are around, around me. Now on paper, I could seem like somebody who is really welcoming, somebody who values equality. I mean, let's talk about this for a minute. I'm a minority myself. I'm dating somebody of another minority. Like I, my friendship circle is very diverse ethnically and, and different backgrounds. And I'm a minister and I run a nonprofit for crying out loud. Like on paper, I fill all the boxes that you would need to check to nicely be put into the non-prejudice category. But I have to recognize, even in lieu of all of this, that the goal of my life is not just to appear fair and just. That whatever wall of hostility, however small, however weak, however feeble, however hidden it might be that exists within my heart, it could be one thought, it could be one judgment, it could be one criticism, it is still a threat to my ability to embrace my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as the family of God, and therefore it must be demolished. Friends, it's time. It's time that we actively investigate within our hearts if there's any hostility within us and begin to tear them down. How? How do we do this? Well, we pray. Most things that are hard, we pray. We ask the Holy Spirit to shed light on the places of our heart that need adjusting. And then we act. We walk across the room on a Sunday to somebody who looks different than us and dresses different than us, might be of a different generation or different background or different ethnicity, might share a different political or social view than us. And we say, hi, my name is fill in the blank. What's yours? I think it's crazy that we go to the same church. I keep seeing you and I don't even know anything about you. I'd love to grab coffee sometime. Or something like that, you know? Say hi, hang out, and don't make it weird. Like, <laughs> but it's in these simple steps that we begin to tear down the walls that have existed for way too long and truly become the family of God. We family. You know, there's one other aspect of family that we can't ignore here today. If we're going to be family the way that Christ intends, then that means we're going to be an ever-growing and expanding family. And Jesus actually paints a picture of what this ever-growing family ought to look like in Luke chapter 14. He gives a story that has significance to each of us in the family of God. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 14. If not, again, we're going to have the passage on the screen for you. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, 
Jesus tells this story. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, ah, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And they said, ah, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, oh, I just got married, so, you know, can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. There's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, if we look at this story a little bit more closely, we see that the initial guests all declined the invite. And so the master who's throwing this party, he's like, listen, I'm not canceling my epic party just because you fools don't have your priorities straight. And so he makes up a whole new invite list. And he has very specific instructions to the servants on who to invite. And the servants must have thought the master had lost his mind. He's like, who does this? Who invites to a great banquet the crippled, the poor, the lame, the blind? And the master didn't say that this was a PR move or a charity event. It would seem as if the master had added them to the list, had made them the priority for no other reason than he wanted them at the party. And so these servants, a bit confused by the master's instructions, but committed to the master's instructions, they set out to fulfill the task. This wasn't an easy task. I mean, imagine going to the poor and inviting them to this banquet. I'm sure a good amount of them were like, no, I have no interest in being at a fancy party. I don't go to fancy parties. I've never been to a fancy party. I'm going to feel out of place. I'm going to be embarrassed. No way, I'm not doing that. I'm sure a lot of them were like a bit skeptical of the invite. Like, really? This sounds too good to be true. Like, what's in it for you? What's the ulterior motive, right? It took a long time for the servants to have to convince those who were being invited of the sincerity of the invitation and the goodness of the master. And that's just the poor. Then there were the lame and the crippled. Not only did they have to convince, but it would take actual manpower to bring them to the party. They had to roll up their sleeves and carry the invited to the party. And then the blind. Talk about having to gain trust. Once there was some convincing that happened and they said yes to the invitation, then the servant had to extend his hand to that blind person, leading them through busy streets and alleyways to get from one side of the town to the other, the whole while reassuring this person, I promise you there's a party at the end of this. I promise you I'm not going to do you harm. And let's be real, this wasn't a fast-moving endeavor. This was a slow-paced venture. Fulfilling this task and assignment that were given to the servants, it wasn't easy. It was hard-working. It was awkward. It was uncomfortable. It was exhausting, and I'm sure for every yes, there was a handful of no's. And when they finally do this, and the guests arrive at the party, you would think, you would think that the servants would say to the master, okay, master, it was a bit of a scramble. We came together as a team. We did what you said. There's some guests here, and we're already behind schedule. It's getting late. Everybody's working overtime, so let's just get this party going. There's people to attend to and get the show on the road. They don't do this. Instead, they say to the master, there's still room for more. It's as if something must have happened on the journey from leaving the master's house to bringing in the guests. 
Something must have taken place in the hearts of the servants as they began to talk with the poor and see firsthand the challenges that they were facing. Something must have taken place and shifted in their hearts as they were carrying a grown man on their shoulders, hearing his story. Something must have shifted in their hearts when they extended their hands to the blind and the blind, they placed their hands and led them from one side of the town to the other. It was as if they started to understand the true intent of the party. And they began to have the same passion for the hurting that the servant had, or that the master had. They began to see people differently. There began to be a fervency and an urgency that the master had. They weren't content with just some people showing up to the party. They wanted every inch of that party full. You know, Jesus commands us as family of God to go out and invite people to know Jesus and experience his love. But somewhere along fulfilling that command, Jesus' hope and desire is that something would shift within us and that we'd no longer fulfill the command with the obligation of a servant, but with the passion of the master. That we would begin to see the hurting of the world, physically hurting, spiritually hurting, economically hurting, relationally hurting, emotionally hurting, and we would be drawn to them. That we wouldn't simply open our doors and hope they'd make their way in, but that we would intentionally go out and seek them, that we would find them, that they would listen to them, we would love them, we would do whatever it takes to lead them to Jesus, lead them to hope, lead them to this great banquet in which we get to say, welcome home. You now belong to the family of God. We've rolled out the red carpet for you. We've pulled out all the stops because we're so excited that you're home. This December, I was speaking at a young adults conference in Kentucky. And after one of the morning sessions, at the end of it, there was a minister there who invited everybody who was a fellow minister or leader to come to the front of the stage and be available to pray for people at the end of the service. And she said to the audience of young adults in this room, if you have some pain right now, some real pain in your life and in your heart, it's time to get real about that pain. It's not time to ignore it or hide it or act like things are okay. You need to come to Jesus and get the healing that you need. That's, that's kind of the direction she gave. And then the service ended. And right away, this tall, beautiful young woman, she beelined her way straight to me. And I asked her her name, and she was soft-spoken, sweet. She said, Mariah. And then I, I, I put my hand on her shoulder, and I was about to ask her, what can I pray for you for? But as soon as I put my hand on her shoulder, she began to sob. Just lost it sobbing. And she was sobbing so hard that she was like falling under the weight of it. And I had to hold her up, which was kind of awkward because she was a lot taller than me. But you know, I found my footing and made it work. And she latched onto me and she put her head on my shoulder and just stayed there crying, 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 sobbing. I didn't really know what to do. I mean, it was as if this girl had bottled up her deep pain for so long, and in this moment, it was being unleashed. And I was wondering if it was ever going to stop. This wasn't just the tears of an emotionally wired, hormone-driven teenager. This was a deep brokenness happening, deep pain. I was like, uh, should I say something? Should I pray? Should I direct her in her pain? But somehow I recognized that this was a holy moment between her and Jesus. And the best thing that I could do was simply to embrace her and, and be silent with her. And then it happened. About 10 minutes into this, I was wearing the thickest sweater I owned that day, which I don't know why I would do that, but I was. And the thickness of the sweater could no longer absorb the tears. And I, and I literally began to feel her tears. They began dripping down my shoulder. 
And when that happened, something shifted within me. And I began to cry myself. Because I realized in this moment, before leading up to this moment, I recognized this girl's pain. And I wanted the best for her, but now I was actually feeling her pain. And I wanted now more than anything for her to experience the embrace of the Heavenly Father. I didn't know what wrong had been done to her. I didn't know what she had done. I didn't know any of the specifics, but I had this now passion for her to receive hope and healing. I wanted her to know more than anything else that she mattered, that she was seen, that she was valued, that there was a place for her, that whatever has happened to her, it doesn't need to be the end of her story, that she can overcome, that she could move forward, that she could do great things. And eventually we did pray together as we both cried together, and we parted ways. And I believe that that moment was healing for her. But I also believe for me it was a moment of revealing purpose for my life. Because I walked away knowing that more than ever, it is my assignment as part of the family of God to meet people in the midst of their pain, to feel their pain, and to lead them to Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who can truly heal the pain of the human condition. So the question becomes, friends, what would it take for us and what would it look for us to actually be the family of God who is not content with the current number in the room but won't settle and won't quit until the house is full? What would it take for us to meet people in the midst of their pain? What would it take for us to begin to pursue people, not with the obligation of a servant, but with the passion of the master? We all know people who are hurting and we all know people who've yet to respond to the invite, who are yet to know that they're even been invited to this great party of God's salvation. Perhaps their pain is great or it's small. That's not what the conversation is about. Everybody has some pain. Can we meet people in their pain? And can we do what it takes? What does it look like for you to meet somebody that you know in their pain? To pray with them, to laugh with them, to listen with them, to encourage them, to invite them to church, to extend a helping hand, to serve them, to do whatever it takes, carry them if need be to this great party that you and I are part of called Jesus' love. You know, we have an amazing thing at our church, a couple things. That's pretty rare. We have Liberty City and Liberty Foundation, nonprofits within our own church that are dedicated to helping the hurting in our own city and in our own world. We could easily applaud ourselves for having them, pat ourselves on the back and say, this is great, we're doing some good things because we, these things exist. But what would it take for each of us to engage in the work of Liberty City or Liberty Foundation? What would it take for us in our own way to roll up our sleeves, give of our time or our resources to either helping the, city in our, in, in, helping the hurting in our city helping the hurting in our world. What could happen if we actually just did something, met people in their pain? What healing could happen in our world? And how many people could end up at the banquet? How full could the house be? Simply because we begin to see and we begin to meet people right where they are. There's a lot of what ifs in today's message. And my hope is that all of these what ifs ultimately lead us to taking our place as the family of God committed to one another, committed to tearing down the walls of hostility within, and committed to continuing to invite others to this family, others to experience God's infinite love. That's my prayer for us. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.